Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Sackbo and myself would like to thank the U of L for their support and distribution of notices, uh, Country Kitchen Catering for their great lunches, as I said before, Shaw TV for broadcasting sessions Sundays at 4.30 p.m., CKXU 88.3 FM Radio and Lethbridge Herald, as well as other media outlets that cover our events. And next week we have... Dr. Robert Sutherland speaking about, uh, the title is, Following Unprecedented Cuts to Post-Secondary Education in Alberta, Is It Business as Usual Eight Months Later? So, uh, with that being said, we're going to have about a uh, half-hour question and answer period with uh, Sheena Jackson here, and uh, keep it on topic and, and ask some good questions. Does it actually work? Okay. There's a microphone back here for you to ask uh, questions into. To, my name is Austin Fennell. I want to thank you for your address today and uh, your courage in raising lots of interesting issues. Now, I would like to know from you whether there is a contradiction between the fundamental issue that you outset out at the beginning and an approach about wholeness. Are those two understandings of the purpose of education different? Are they in conflict with each other? And how did you experience them in conflict? <clears throat> yes, they are in conflict because, as I stated in holistic learning, we're talking about the whole preparation of the whole person to bring them to self-actualization. In the, <clears throat> in the present system, like I said, it's all about competition through a grading system. So... As children enter into enter into a, each grade level, it is competition because you're graded by everything, by your academic your your academic knowledge, and it leaves out other aspects of learning that can come through hands-on learning, where a child can may not be able to. Um, verbalize verbalize it, and that's what you're, and write it down, and that's where that's where the competition lies is in transferring your knowledge onto paper. But there's another approach, and that's your holistic um, approach where it's a hands-on learning. Yes, there is a contradiction. <coughs> Terry Shellington. Thank you very much for your presentation. <clears throat> we had such a lively discussion at our table uh, around uh, 
learning styles and so on, and partly growing out of your comments about, about the competitive nature of, uh, uh, of regular North American education and your resistance to grading, uh, I continue to <coughs> struggle with um, how that would work out in practice and, uh, uh, and wonder if, if uh, good education would not involve uh, some of both. Uh, in that, in that, uh, without an educational system that develops some excellence in some skills, uh, children will be disadvantaged when they leave the school system. They may be very whole in many ways. So, I, I wonder about how w would it be some kind of compromise of the two, or how do we develop excellence uh, in in students and a desire to be excellent? Um, if you, um, Dr. Reg Kroshu is developing a model that parallels First Nations learning and mainstream education. So, so if you take, for instance, um, in our First Nations um, learning model, the holistic model, it's all about striving for perfection. And then when you get to that state, so if a child in, let's say, grade one. When, when a child goes into grade one, we want them to read, to write, and um, be academically ready for grade two. Well, that's no different in First Nations learning, but it's the approach when we talk about the, the, the readiness and striving for that excellence. So when a child receives their report card, at the end of um, grade one, and it says, you've passed, you've met all the criteria. First Nations are very similar, but in, it incorporates not just what you can write on paper, it also incorporates your readiness in terms of your, your, physiolog your physiological ability to do things, and being uh, ready to take on more responsibility. And so once, you re once a child understands their responsibility to move on to the next level, then we go through a, a passage of um, rights to move forward. So it's not th it, it isn't really all that different. And yes, we can do it. We can amalgamate both systems. But we need to understand that paralleling of how we get to those areas of excellence. Whereas right now in the, in the present system, teachers will pass our students even though they're not ready, maybe for economic reasons, because we need to get our children through this system. And whether they're lacking or not, there's no perfection. And it's based on competition, because maybe if they're, um, they've got a learning disability, they say, well, that child will never learn. We'll just pass them on. So there is a lack of understanding there where that child may be, in a traditional sense, very keen in other areas that would make up for the, the lack of reading skills. Hi, my name is Sherry. Thank you for your presentation. With uh, further to that comment with uh, testing, uh, myself, my husband, and we've seen education from that side of it, but then we've also had an opportunity to see children grow up with no tests taken and 
sometimes when the tests are given, that once that test is there, they almost limit themselves or the learning outcomes. So being able to to respect what's not seen, sort of the roots of it or the seeds when it's coming and then where it goes afterwards is, is a real gift. So I have enjoyed learning about uh, the First Nations education and Browning has something um, quite interesting. I was wondering if you could give the top three aspects that you would put into an education system that, and if you did do that at the start of your presentation, I apologize. The West Side Hill, unfortunately, had a, a big accident, so. So you want our three? Three most important comment, or uh, aspects, or three or something like that. Well, I think, I think if you look back to our, our worldview of education, this is what we need. This is what we need to make a person, you know, to come to their self-actualization. These are our most, and if you, if you go back into history, when Maslow, when Maslow was um, living with the Siksika people, and he developed Maslow, the hierarchical needs, he also identified these needs. So, so there's an agreement, you know, there's almost an agreement out there that all people need this in order to, you need a balance of both. It's not just about academic knowledge. You need to be well-balanced in all of these aspects in order to be successful. So if you have a low self-esteem, you know, sitting in a classroom where maybe it's something as simple as the child sitting next to you saying, you know, bad remarks to you and nobody addressing it, it does hamper on a child's learning. So we really need to look at, you know, what, what makes not just First Nations successful, but what makes people successful. And our First Nations are part of those people. And I think that we've got a very kind and loving approach to um, developing our, our, our learners in our communities. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation today. Uh, it's always refreshing to many of us to hear a voice from the Native community in, in, in Canada, which has been based on something different than the plutocracy that we've developed here in Canada and in North America and around the what we call the developed world, where all that really matters is money. Uh, to use an example that we talked about around the table, uh, many kids now are being trained after seeing Tiger Woods do so well, he just, he just made a billion dollars, they announced a month ago, past the billion dollar mark in his earnings playing golf. So many pa parents are teaching their children to start playing golf at three years of age, so they might become a Tiger Wood and make a billion dollars by the time they're 40 years, years of age. Uh, the point being that that's just a pattern that's followed throughout our society. And ma many of our educational uh, uh, decisions are being made on the basis of money, um, which overlooks 
many of the things that you're talking about here, about the holistic approach of a, of a human being. Um, the problem that we find ourselves in now is that even uh, for those of you who have been keeping up with what's happening educationally in Canada, we're being re very worried now that we're falling behind even the Oriental people in terms of, of the performance of our children in schools. And we are. Now that just it points even more directly to the competitiveness that we have established globally for making money. My question is, even though I'm delighted that you're, you're here and presenting this, and I want you to continue with it because that's our only glimmer of hope uh, in, in this uh, plutocratic society to continue on the work that you're doing and in, in your beliefs. My question is, what chance do you think we have in this global movement towards more competitiveness and, and less uh, uh, fundamental uh, holistic approach? Well, as, as you can see, if you look at the um, sports, for instance, when we say people are successful, we see how much money they make for shooting a little black puck around the ice, for hitting a golf ball this size or batting a ball this big. You know, that's what we, we identify, and, and we kind of cause that ourselves. Because if you pay to go to an NHL hockey game, if you pay to go to a baseball game or a concert, you're, you're actually supporting that, that view that money is success. And in our, in, our holistic, in our holistic view, it's not about money. It's about relationships. And it's about and it's about um, being able to share your wealth of knowledge or your wealth of physical, um, whatever you have physically within your house, to share it with your community or whoever comes within your presence. It's, it's really not, and that's what we call a humbleness. It's not about money. In our First Nations people, although... You know, a lot of us may live under the, you know, the poverty, in that poverty zone. You go into our First Nations home, and you're going to have, they'll always offer you food to eat, something to drink. You never leave a First Nations home without that. They'll be as accommodating as anyone else. And that's what, it's about sharing who you are as a, as a person and giving your best to them, even if it's just a piece of bread. It's not about how much, you, it's about being able to share and knowing that sharing is an answer. Thank you, Sheena, for your talk. I'm Mary Shillington. Uh, just on a little piece of humor, uh, most sports uh, make a lot of money unless you're playing in the Canadian Football League, so yay riders, <laughs> we went for it. <laughs> <laughs> even though they're not making much money compared to other sports. Um, we had a very interesting discussion at our table, as Austin uh, referred to and Terry to, um, uh, around a variety of things. And one of them was, uh, you know, the, the research that has been done with Aboriginal people, that you said some of it was good research, and but it, you wonder if uh, if the people who were involved in 
in this bill <laughs> read any of it, and we, we, I would certainly agree that probably they didn't, or if the, if some people read it, it wasn't listened to by from the government. But that's sort of what's happening with so much research these days that the government isn't really interested in it. You know, climate change, all those kinds of things, and around consultation that that uh, the government isn't really interesting interested in consulting with anybody, really. They have their own little niche that they discuss. Uh, you will probably gather I'm not a conservative uh, from what I'm saying, uh, and uh, you'd be right. <laughs> um, I've worked with lots of Aboriginal people as a clinical social worker and, um, and really respect the holistic approach and the, uh, your goals here for your view of education. And we've seen that happen with our grandson who, who had really had esteem, uh, low esteem, and is now in uh, a, a class, a s special class, where he, his esteem is going high and he's doing much better and anxious to go to school, which he wasn't before. He's 14. Uh, so how do we help uh, children, all children, uh, in this way so that children can feel secure and safe and, and get their relational needs met. Uh, if the federal government is not listening to you people, how do we help, uh, as a, a society, how do we help that happen better so that our children, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal children, can learn better and, uh, and be a success in, in their own way according to their skills and interests? So you're asking how can mainstream society help First Nations people? And other, and other children, too, who fit, like our, our grandson happens to be an Aboriginal child, but uh, how can we help everybody to, to, to fit into that, the sort of the, your view, the Blackfoot view of education better uh, and get their needs met so that they are more uh, comfortable with what they can contribute uh, in their families, in the community, and so on? I would say that it's a change in attitude. It's a change in attitude, you know, not just for First Nations people, but for, for society itself. We need to shift our change in attitude, just like we're talking about, um, you know, money being the, the um, what we deem successful. If they're making millions of dollars, then you're successful. Great if you can make a million dollars, but really, really, if we, if we, not everybody's going to make a million dollars, and it's good that people can reach that epitome of um, perfection, but you really need to be paid for it. You know, it's our, it's up to us as people to change and to learn about each other and to learn about why we are, the, why First Nations are the way they are, and it goes back to residential school when they tried to take the Indian out of the child. And, you know, we were, we were taught that we weren't good people. We were heathens, that we, you know, our practices, our traditional practices to bring us, you know, that what made us whole people were were evil and bad and you know we that's what was ingrained in our parents 
And then when we went into, when my generation, I wasn't, I'm not a residential school survivor, but my parents were. And my parent, I should say my mother is. My mother is, my father has passed away. But you can see very distinctly the difference between myself and my mother because she still has those ingrained beliefs about First Nations people that, you know, um, we may be, um, um, some of our practices are not acceptable, but the, the, but the um, Roman Catholic way of doing things is the way to go. And so we have our own debates, and she's, she's actually decolonizing herself right now to bring in bringing herself back to our ceremonies to reestablish who she is as a First Nations person. And it's a long, slow process, but it's a change in our attitude to accept people, whether you're First Nations or not, accept them for who they are and understand their background in order to, um, you know, to change. We've got a to change the areas of discrimination that exist. A lot of people don't like to use that word discrimination, but I have to use it here because it's a huge factor and a barrier in our learning process. My name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thanks a lot for coming down in the cold weather. I know it wasn't a pleasant drive, I'm sure. I hate to... Uh, bring money back into this discussion here because everything seems to revolve around money. But approximately how much less funding do First Nations get as compared to public schools? And when you talk about the core funding, First Nations children, in reality, there's all kinds of figures that are out there, but I've sat on a, um, a funding analysis table to, um, to get to the core of our funding issue and how much First Nations actually receive in Alberta. And on, when you take all the First Nations across Alberta with the education dollars that we receive for First Nations in Alberta from ANSI, on average, we really only receive $5,684. That's the core, the base. And then you add on a few other extras of um, special education, the targeted program funding and those really only bumps. And, it, and the funding is not consistent across Alberta. There's, there's a lot of inconsistencies in the funding. So it makes it look like um, First Nations receive equitable funding, but no. It's that where in the area where the, where the inconsistencies exist. So the, and when I'm talking about those kind of inconsistencies, it depends on geographical location. It depends on... Um, the geographical location, and if you're in isolation, even though those isolate, isolated communities may seem like um, they get extra funding for to provide educational services, they really don't, because 
when you average in and you take into consideration in order for the isolated communities to to just talk about technology or to think about bringing technology to their First Nation, it's a huge cost to bring technology to an isolated community within Alberta. And not only just that, take for instance, um, bringing the tech, um, technology even just to our local reserves that exist here around um, Alberta, here within Alberta and just around Lethbridge. It's a huge cost. So there is a huge gap. And I, you know, we're, and like I said, we're not saying that funding is the answer to all of this. But there is a, there is a huge gap in how we receive funding. And realistically, can First Nations be effective by only receiving $5,684 a piece for our children? What do regular children get? And outside the... Uh, if for a First Nations child be um, going into a provincial school? No, no, a regular student. A regular student? How much do they get? Non-Aboriginal? I can't give you an exact figure because we didn't actually do that, that study, but we did do the study of, in comparison of... First Nations across Alberta. So that that answer we should have within the next few weeks because we've got a funding table that's going to go back to that funding analysis and um, begin further further research into that area there. Hi. Hi. I'm Bev Mundell Atherstone. Thank you very much for your talk. Sorry I was late. I was on the hill. Um, I do know a little bit of the answer to um, Terry's question because Milo and Arrowwood schools take children from the Siksika Reserve and I know that the funds that come from the federal government to the Siksika which is then transferred to Palliser School Division is never enough. It's about two-thirds or less. Two-thirds or less. Um, it, it seems to me that... Uh, when we look at what you would like, I'm a psychologist, or have was, I'm retired. But Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, is essential for all of us. And um, in the 60s, when I was going through my psychology and education um, degrees, early degrees, um, we were really trying to work on cooperative and collaborative learning. And it was... It was very difficult to break away from the individualistic model, but we were able to and found that the children learned better and there was a lot of research to support that. But the um, individualism and uh, uh, and competitiveness uh, works well with capitalism, whereas cooperation is really the antithesis to capitalism. And also for um, keeping people under the thumb of government, um, hierarchical systems work better. So to teach the children in the school system within a uh, competitive and hierarchical program really teaches them to kowtow to authority. Whereas a competitive model 
would help people to a, co a cooperative program would help people to work together. And there was just some research yesterday that showed that in the U.S., the sense of cohesiveness and the sense of trust between people is the lowest it's ever been since they've been keeping records. And they attribute this to the, the lack of trust um, is, is related to the uh, economics of the times, that there's so many poor people and there's such a huge gap between rich and poor. So they were saying the only thing that could really bring this back would be a war. And I was, I was shocked, but the point was that during the war, people worked together, or during the Dirty Thirties in Saskatchewan, people all worked together and helped each other. So we become more cooperative in times of duress. Anyway, so it seems to me we've got a couple, we've got a variety of things going on that really make um, the holistic approach, which I think people in education would embrace and other people would embrace, it goes, it goes against. Sorry, I was just going to ask if there's a question. Yeah, I'm going to come up with a question. It seems to, to <laughs> thank you. It's, it seems to go against our, um, our dominant discourse. And so I think what you're fighting is not only the, the, all the historical things that are going on, but I, I think you're fighting a, an ideology, I mean, at various levels, that threatens the whole capitalism of our society. And um, I, don't know, I don't know where we can go with that except through more education, but even in Alberta, they've made cuts so that we will be a dumbed-down society. So... <laughs> And we're, we're pretty dumb. Look, we, all, we keep electing the, the conservatives time and time. We're getting dumber by the minute. So, um, yeah, so, so I'd like to know, how can we help to change that discourse um, within a society that has drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak, of capitalism and individualism as being the only way? I think the only way I think the only way is through effective collaboration. We've we've stopped talking to one another. Which is why it the the gap of um, in the level of trust by not talking to one another and sharing best practices and good experiences, you know, that gap is widening because we don't talk to one another anymore. And we don't listen to each other when we do talk. We, we have our minds made up, you know, this is how we're going to do it. And I wanted to make a comment again. It's not what you know, it's who you know. So if you're best friends with the corporate CEO that's making the billion dollars a year, you know, by God, you're probably going to get what you want. Because the corporations are really who rules. And so we need more collaboration with each other. You know, we need an effective, meaningful collaboration. And no, like, no, not that domineering collaboration where one side is going to feel threatened by the other. That's, I hope, you know, I've answered that. Uh, Sherry again. 
I um, appreciate your answer that you gave me, and it was nice to revisit with uh, Maslow and how I'd heard that connection with within the Blackfoot. Could you take me further in understanding what that looks like? How is that? How have you had success in the past, or even currently, with meeting those five? So I was looking for something. If you have concrete examples, well, you you have a concrete example in Martin. I know Martin's person parents very well. Um, Martin was brought up by very traditional parents and um, his parents have taught him you know the the fundamentals of of our traditional knowledge you know and I know his parents very well. We've sat in the same ceremonial circles and um, our ceremonies and our identities very um, fundamental to his upbringing and most children that have that background grow up to be very successful in the education system because we know who we are and in generally each of these needs are met very well within that family structure so I'm sorry Martin if I'm <laughs> but I do you know I'm this and that's that is success. Thank you. Well, I would like to note with that that 100% of my peers that are involved in ceremony have uh, gone on to post-secondary education. And as well as those that were not involved in our ceremony, but afterwards, but that we're getting post-secondary education ended up becoming involved in our ceremony. So once they got their post-secondary education, they realized what value our way of life actually is. And uh, likewise, everybody that I grew up with in our ceremonial circles, uh, my peers, have all are working on their degrees or got their degrees already. And some have gone on to medical school, law school, and so, yeah. I just wanted to, um, if the question period is over, I wanted to end with a, with a, um, a concept that I was uh, told my, by my grandmother. And one of the things that she taught me is that because, you know, we're very um, spiritually connected, with our ancestors. She said, as long as our feet touch the ground, our traditional knowledge and our traditional and our existence will never be disconnected as we are guided by our ancestors through ceremony and we reconnect with them every spring. And every time we have ceremony, we reconnect our people and we walk to the ceremony and we walk every day on our ground. And that's this is our home, and we'll never, we'll, regardless of what strategy is used to take the Indian out of us, we'll always be for, we'll always be Nitsitapi. I won't say Indian because I will always be Nitsitapi as long as our feet touch the ground. Thank you.